Welcome on into another episode of Rethink Reshoring. I'm Kaylee Nix here from Freight Waves, and we are with Rosemary Coates, head of the Reshoring Institute, back for another conversation about reshoring and the rises. And today we're talking a little bit about some of the fails. So, Rosemary, thank you for joining me as always. Another good conversation on deck for today. Ah, thank you. It's my, uh, my one of my favorite topics is talking about failures uh, because we learn so much from them. So it's pretty exciting to do this episode today. Yeah, I like this one because I think it bears talking about, right? Not every reshoring project is something that can be successful. It takes a lot of steps to get to a point where your reshoring project works. And oftentimes you're going to have to take some steps back. It can be like a one step forward, eight steps back kind of process, right? So let's jump right in. Right now, reshoring is one of those things that is on a ton of executive agendas for some good reasons that we've talked about previously in some of our episodes. New study by Bloomberg finds that about 80% of executives are actually looking at reshoring initiatives. Can you talk about this study just a little bit to get us started? Yeah. So, you know, it's really interesting how popular this idea is. I think in the amongst the general population of the U.S. and politicians and, uh, you know, just in general, um, because it represents a growth in jobs. And so, uh, the idea of reshoring is very popular. But of course, when you're dealing with a business um, that's all focused on uh, costs and benefits and dollars and cents, you have to be able to make it work economically. So it happens to be on everyone's agenda. Whether or not it works out is a, you know, a different question or how to make it work out is a different question. Um, but yeah, I, I think one of the other important issues is very uh, closely tied with sustainability. So obviously, if you uh, shorten the length of your supply chain, you're going to reduce your global carbon footprint. And so sustainability and reshoring go together quite nicely. And, and uh, so it's, you know, on board agendas, it's correlated with sustainability. And I think the idea uh, and the approach to reshoring is definitely growing now. I think that it's interesting to know that a lot of executives and board teams are talking about this because I think that it highlights one of those really dangerous pitfalls when you t look, take a look at reshoring, right? If you're talking about it from a boardroom perspective, there's oftentimes this kind of idealist conversation or idealist tone to the conversation behind reshoring. It's great for sustainability. It's going to create all of these jobs. We're going to have a great success with our reshoring projects. But as tends to happen when you talk about boardroom versus reality, there's some degrees of separation between the idealism inside the boardroom and the reality of what these projects look like, right? For executives who are thinking about starting reshoring initiatives or thinking about starting to talk about it, what should those conversations really look like around some of the big time challenges to keep them out of that idealist mindset and maybe bring them back into reality a little bit? Sure. Well, you know, first of all, it's a big idea, reshoring. So can you actually make it work economically uh, and maintain your client base? And, you know, putting all the pieces together is really a lot harder than it appears. Um, and there's no substitute for good project management. So very often when companies initiate a reshoring project, 
They may start with the very basic fundamentals with just total cost of ownership and figuring out what the costs here would be versus the cost somewhere else. And that's a, that's an okay starting point. Um, you know, we encourage that. We think that's really important from a, from a jumpstart perspective, but it's certainly not all of the picture. Uh, so in order to make the economics work, you almost always have to automate. There has to be some component of automation to extract the high cost of labor in the U.S. And so doing that cost analysis and understanding what that is is, is really fundamental. Then you need to look at innovation. So are you innovating a new product? It's, it's you know, not that exciting to just, you know, ship a production line overseas and bring it back. But if you could innovate and create a new product or a better product or somehow uh, address a new marketplace, that's a, that's a great component to add to your reshoring story. Um, and then, you know, there's uh, lots of skills and education required in a new factory. You have to find a local, uh, 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 you know, some kind of availability of a factory or build a factory. Um, there are taxes and other incentives to concern yourself with. Uh, and then a marketing message. We know, for example, uh, that people are in the U.S. anyway are very favorable with products that are made in the USA. So being able to label it that way is part of this process as well, although it's fairly complicated. Um, labeling practices are uh, tied up in a lot of laws and regulations in the U.S., and you have to be careful on how you label your product. So these are the kind of things that go into the sort of decision, and each of these is potentially a place of failure. Um, now, failure is my favorite topic uh, very often to talk about. Uh, I live in Silicon Valley, and I'll tell you, it's a theme here everywhere is fail fast and fail forward. Uh, this is a concept that you should try new things, um, new ideas. If you think they're going to work, um, try them out. And if you fail, learn from that failure. That's why they say fail fast. So it's it's not a stigma to to fail uh, here, it's actually um, it's actually supported and promoted. You know, if anybody saw the movie Oppenheimer um, over the past couple weeks, uh, you know that he was a theoretical physicist, and that means he had a lot of big ideas, but wasn't sure if anything would work. And so they had to keep trying different alternate approaches. Um, to determine whether or not his theories would work. Well, you know, that's kind of the same way here. Uh, I think an awful lot of companies need to fail uh, and try new ideas, especially in reshoring. And if things aren't working out, you start again and start a different approach. So hopefully that's um, not going to kill the project, but um, will certainly help improve the outcome. So our show is called Rethink Reshoring because literally that's what has to happen when you're talking about changing this frame of reference, especially if you're looking at it from a boardroom perspective, right? I think in supply chain, there's a little bit of that fail fast, fail forward mentality, but a lot of it is kind of fall into success, especially for these companies who have maybe seen an entrance in a hot market and have then continued to see their successes despite what the market does or maybe seen some challenging setbacks, but made it through and not really have had to deal with those big time overall failures, right? But to have a successful reshoring project, you have to rethink your expectations going into it. 
right. and maybe even rethink your analysis and your acceptance of failure, right? There are some big time companies who have tried reshoring initiatives and ended up with them not successful the first time. What are some of those favorite examples of yours? Yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, there there are degrees of success and failure, and an awful lot of companies have been very successful with reshoring. And of course, that's what we promote, and we try to help companies through that process, and um, you know, refer them to our methodology and and structure that can be sort of foolproof if you follow all the steps. Uh, so you know, that's really important. But failure, you know, as I said, is important too, and hopefully. Maybe it's only one part of your project that fails. Um, but if if the whole thing fails, then you know it can be um, it can be a bit of a disaster, but also an, a big opportunity for learning again. So let's take one that was recently in the news, and that's um, Craftsman Black and Decker. Uh, Black and Decker bought Craftsman Tools a few years ago, a while back. Um, and as I think most people recognize that name, they were sold at Sears forever and they were a top of the line, high quality products, really appreciated by, uh, by the community, by anybody who used these products, really, really super. Um, and they were being uh, more, most recently manufactured in uh, Tijuana, Mexico, uh, and then brought across the border and imported. Well, Stanley Black and Decker reorganized and wanted to open a new factory uh, where they could automate the production, extract all of that labor costs, uh, and produce a high-quality product and be able to label it made in the USA. So what they did was open a factory in Texas uh, and uh, had the engineers design automated uh, programs to be able to, to uh, manufacture these tools. Uh, mostly hand tools. Um, now, the original factory was doing a lot of hand work. So at the end, the finishing and the fittings and so forth were all done by hand, a lot of, lot of labor involved. And so that leap from uh, manual labor to automation is, can be a very difficult one. Um, not everything is subject to automation, as, as Stanley Black and Decker found out. Um, they automated this plant in Texas. We're trying to make hand tools there, and they just couldn't get the automation to work. Um, they tried and tried and tried, just couldn't couldn't um, get it to work to produce the kind of high-quality products that they needed. And then it was also much slower than it had been in their factory in Mexico. So um, after several years, um, they decided to abandon the project and close the factory. Um, they also had to, or actually they didn't close the factory, they just pared it back considerably. Um, and they tried to close the factory in, in Mexico and had to keep it open longer because they needed to fill orders and so forth. So they sort of bumbled along for a while um, and then you know, rethought or re-engineered the manufacturing line, and now they're producing a, a small amount of hand tools. But this was uh, the kind of failure um, that we're talking about before, is this leap to automation. And while it sounds good, it makes good business sense, uh, you can extract labor and therefore costs. Um, the, in the ideal situation, you have higher quality products coming off an automated line, as well as faster, more capacity, and so on. There are all kinds of benefits um, to automation. 
But if you can't meet your quality standards or for some reason it's too difficult to um, to manufacture a product with a fully automated production line, then you've got to rethink that. So, uh, you know, in some cases, I guess in Stanley Black & Decker, the full story isn't out yet, but I assume that they have re-engineered a lot of their um, approaches and their processes uh, so that there is some some additional labor now that's been added back in to do the finishing part on the tools. But of course, their business suffered in the meantime. Uh, they couldn't fill orders. Uh, there were quality issues, so they had to, uh, you know, redo production. Um, so <clears throat> there were just a lot of issues that cost a lot of money and a lot of rethinking and a lot of, um, uh, you know, re-engineering kind of processes. So let's hope that. Uh, those engineers that um, thought they could automate and, and failed in this first go-round are given the opportunity to try again because you should learn from that experience. So that's one big one, and that's a recent one. So it um, seems like... Another, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, it seems like no. part of the lesson here is that automation in this reshoring initiative isn't the quick flip of a switch, right? You can't just turn off production at one factory and expect to turn on production at another you have to have this kind of slow transition or almost a slow funnel of work from one side of things, maybe outsourced or offshored to your reshored place. And that can be a barrier to entry for people looking to reshore, right? Because it's expensive to develop and to deploy that kind of slow roll automation and get it over there from two pieces in and then eventually pare it down into one. Is, is that one of those barriers to entry when we're looking at uh, companies, especially smaller companies looking to reshore? is that they might not have the funds or the ability to finance two places at once as they wind down operations in one place and start them in another? Yeah, for sure. And I think this is a cautionary tale as well and something that we learn from, and that's that you probably should parallel uh, your manufacturing for a while until you're sure that the new manufacturing plant can deliver the kind of products that you want. So um, that, that sort of changeover that you'll find that's a a common business practice in a lot of different areas. Um, for example, when you're putting in a software system, you usually run in parallel for a month or two to make sure that all it's working properly and that recording all the data that you need. So this idea of parallel processing is fairly important to assure success and make sure there's a smooth transi transition. Um, but you're right, it can be slow. Um, it has to be monitored closely. You have to verify and check and you know, hopefully that that all uh, runs well. The other thing is in reshoring, a lot of times they're not actually um, producing the same products. They're inventing something new or, uh, you know, it's a new innovative product that now is going to come up in a, a manufacturing site in the U.S. where in the past they may have just simply shipped it to China to produce in China. So there may be a difference there too, but you know, go, going slowly, verification at each step, solid project management, that's really important. Not just uh, handing it off to engineering or to finance, but having a, a true uh, experienced professional project manager is really important. So let's talk about that second example of the reshoring failure. We've got the Otis elevator failure. What's up with that one and how were they able to come out the other side? Yeah, this one's been around for a while, pre-pandemic. But Otis elevator um, is one of the few uh, elevator manufacturers in the world. So there's only a handful 
uh, and very successful over time, well-known, you know, lots of high-rise buildings, used Otis Elevator and so forth. Ned had a factory uh, in Mexico and wanted to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. And so they selected a location in Florence, South Carolina. And the profile of Florence, South Carolina was very good at the time. Uh, there were there was a kind of a highish unemployment rate, which meant there were workers available. Uh, they had uh, a low cost environment, somewhat some, a small town, not rural exactly, but a small town still. Uh, and you know that has certain advantages also in terms of cost and availability of uh, land and. Um, and uh, buildings and so forth. I mean, all these are would be taken into consideration. Uh, and so they picked Florence, South Carolina as a place to build a brand new plant. And so they built it uh, and, um, and uh, they fully automated the production. They re-engineered the production line so it would have all kinds of new machine tools and all sorts of automation to improve productivity and, and the quality and so forth. Uh, and then um, they were asked by their parent company to implement SAP, which if you ever worked in an industrial environment, you know, SAP is a big software package and it's wonderful. It's well engineered. And I actually, full disclosure, worked for SAP for five years. Uh, so it's really great software, but there's no question it's difficult. It's very complicated and difficult to implement and hard for employees to adopt. So they decided to implement SAP in the first year they opened the factory. So they sort of opened the doors to the factory uh, and there were no workers. And even though there were workers available, they did not have the right skill set. So the, all this new advanced machinery and um, you know all this automation, requires a different skill set from just ordinary assembly processes. Uh, and the people in the area, and from what they could draw on from even further surrounding areas, they just didn't have enough people to run the machinery with the right skills. So um, after about a year, uh, they lost about $60 million um, in, in revenue and cost uh, to build this new plant. And just could barely fill any orders. And so, you know, it was kind of a, a big mess. And written about, you know, the Wall Street Journal and several other places. This isn't a story I'm telling out of school. <laughs> um, and then, uh, uh, so I think the CEO was fired and they reorganized and so forth. Uh, but, you know, this is a very good example of one of the key issues in in evaluating reshoring. And that's um, and that's working closely with, in this case, community colleges, to make sure that you've got employees that are trained to run your machinery. And I say community colleges because they've really picked up the gap between uh, what used to be technical training um, and, um, and have set up all kinds of programs that are specific to companies and machine shops where you can get trained and you know all sorts of um, good work where today's employees in an automated environment can get trained. And so what, what happened with Otis Elevator is they neglected to think about the workforce going forward, not only what was currently available in terms of skills, but also how they would partner with a training company or a community college 
to be able to train new employees with the skills that they needed to continuously fill that production line. Uh, so after a year, they sort of threw in the towel and rethought the whole situation. It was, uh, it's kind of a famous case of failure also. So what can we learn from that? You know, here again, um, it really important to think about your workforce. Are they trained? Are they capable? They can be able to manage the new machinery. That's essential. And then for God's sake, don't put in a big ERP system at the same time. I mean, I just can't imagine how they would try to do that, um, implement SAP at the same time they're bringing up a new factory. I mean, just as got, you know, potential failure signs written all over it. The importance there of knowing your audience and knowing when to bite off just enough and not too much more than you can chew. So obviously, these two cases are examples of failure in successful companies, companies that have both a really great dedicated consumer audience already and a pretty big brand presence, which means that their failure was a little bit insulated, right? They they had the ability to capital uh, to reorganize and to walk away from it and say, okay, you know what, we can do something different. So if, if a company goes ahead and fails that reshoring initiative, what are their next steps to come back and to really come back a little bit stronger, especially if they're looking to attempt it again? Well, of course, you know, in both cases, Black & Decker and Otis Elevator, um, coming back, I mean, they, they did come back, both of them. And um, in, in, in the case of uh, uh, Black & Decker, they are continuing to produce on a lower level. But I think what happens when you get a failure like this, you, you need to sit down and do what's called a postmortem, um, where you evaluate what happened with the project. And in fact, I would encourage everyone to do postmortems on every project that they do. So take a few minutes to say what went well, what didn't go so well, what worked, what didn't work, and that sort of thing. So starting off in a failure like this, and in both cases where they were big failures, uh, starting off by trying to analyze what um, uh, what went wrong and where it went wrong and what they didn't plan for, just really learning from this opportunity. It's just a grand opportunity to learn new things. And then hopefully taking corrective action uh, or a corrective pathway to get the project back on track or to rethink what you originally uh, designed. Um, so maybe... Uh, in the Black and Decker case, you may want to take some uh, some of the automation away uh, and put people in those places to finish the tools and, and so forth, because that's the way you find success. You know, another great example is a lot of running shoe companies try to automate um, their production. I, I had occasion to work for a running shoe company uh, as a consultant, and I went to all the fa their factories in China and Vietnam. And what it was astonishing to see how much labor is involved. You know, when you turn over your shoe and there are all those little black and pink squares and designs on the bottom, those are all individually glued by hand. Uh, and so there's lots of labor involved. So a few years ago, there was... Um, a couple companies had tried to automate this process uh, and produce a fully automated uh, running shoe that uh, was made by machines. And it failed also. Um, there were just parts of this, um, this production that lends itself to manual processing that just couldn't be imitated by machinery or not effectively imitated. I'm sure 
you could probably do it eventually, but costly in a costly manner. So, um, so to you have to you know think over the whole landscape and understand the end product has um, got to be high quality standards. It's got to meet all these specifications. And to do that, you may need some mix of uh, automation as well as um, manual labor. And at the end of the day, if you can't quite figure out that mix, you don't know your next steps and you don't know how to recover, seek help from the experts like you guys at the Reshoring Institute. Rosemary, another great episode here. I love talking about failures just as much as you do. So thank you for coming on and bringing us this exciting topic for today. If people want to get some more resources, reach out to you and reach out to you guys, where can they go to do that? Yes, um, I, you should check out our website. We have a, a very robust website with lots of information. It's all free. It's all downloadable. We're a nonprofit organization and nonpartisan organization. We try to play it right down the middle, but you can, all this information is available. And that's at www.reshoringinstitute.org. All right. And thank you guys for staying tuned in with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Rosemary will be back with a special guest in next week's episode. So make sure that you stay caught up. If you've missed any of our episodes so far, you can find them wherever you listen to your podcast, Spotify or Apple Music. Give us a listen or give us a watch by heading on over to FreightWaves.com or YouTube.FreightWaves.com, that is, and give us a uh, watch there as well. Thank you guys for staying tuned. We'll see you all next week. Mm-hmm.